The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's episode, Trident Room hosts Mike Morris and Brian Parrio sit down and have a drink with co-author of the ISIS reader, Craig Whiteside. This episode was recorded the 19th of August, 2020. Well, if you have another article out and talking kind of about this threat that we have in great power competition, Russia, China, and all that, and uh, the use of our terms, um, gray zone conflict and hybrid war, and a couple of my own professors here in the NSA department have railed against the use of these terms. Oh, they do? Separately. Good. Yeah, yeah good they're, like, they're like, I hate this. Stop using this word. Well, Send them my article. <laughs> one particular professor in particular, like, stop using, you know, gray zone. There's no such like, I need no. to know who this is. <laughs> Later. Um, so what, uh, in, in your view, then, in your article, uh, what, what kind of meaning do these terms carry? And what are the consequences of, I guess, misusing them or the mischaracterization that they bring? So, so I wrote it with my friend Don Stoker, who teaches at the Naval War College, or he taught at the Naval War College for a really, really long time. And uh, he's a Clausewitz scholar, so he's kind of got the this old school um, mentality about what is war, and it's, he's been very influential on me, of course, as a junior junior colleague of his. But um, you know, we you know, I study the Islamic State, which is a hybrid threat, right? It's got you know, it does terrorism, it it, um, it has guerrilla cells and it's quite excellent at those kind of things but it also created a state and my my current project is looking at the four armies they created now these are not armies like we normally understand them but certainly conventional forces uh as you probably saw in 2016 right or at least the tail end of of some of those conventional forces until they morphed back into the thing so the idea of like hybrid threats is not something that we take issues with. Like there's all kinds, you know, there's hybrid threats. Some of them are part criminal. That's quite difficult sometimes to even figure out, you know, what is the Islamic State? Are they a criminal mafia organization? Are they a terror organization? Are they an insurgency? Are they uh, ideologue, you know, ideologues? Uh, are they former Ba'athists, you know, undercover of is- Islamist clothes, you know? And so you know, the, the idea of hybrid threats, not, not a problem. Uh, in general, but when we see it at the strategic level of discourse, we start to get concerned because this is really a tactical observation of your the character of your foe uh, on the, at the tactical level and maybe at the operational level. <clears throat> but when you're talking about hybrid threats, like how why would that impact the United States? Like everything's hybrid for the United States. We're a global power. We, you know, we deal with nonsensical terrorists on one side and you know, the, so you know, Russia and China on the other. And so there's a spectrum there, and it's you know it's quite diverse and complex. Uh, to put you know to put use the word hybrid it, it is almost again we say it's, it's just um, you know it describes everything and therefore it describes nothing, right? So um, that was one problem we had, and then the gray zones the other. You know, one there's not to get it too deep into an uh, per, one specific article, but. Uh, definitions are important, and these definitions are—they're all over the place. You will—they're really used interchangeably, which I f- usually find hysterical. Like they'll just say, and some people won't even try. They'll just say gray zone and hybrid warfare as if they're the same thing. Right. They're totally different. They—they they actually, 
mean different things as they've been developed, but you know, these might have been good ideas at some time that are so, you know, bastardized. Pardon the, my French. That I'm, they're almost unusable. Maybe now. they shouldn't have made it all the way into the, you know, into the doctrine books and the term and strategy. Uh, by documents. you know, geographic combatant commanders using them to describe things that are vague. And you know, the the real issue we have is not like what should we use when we're talking about war. I've listened because to a three-star general give me a talk on gray zone conflict and right. you know below the level of war basically right. so <clears throat> yeah how did, how would you yeah. start to define these threats and these well, activities you know i'll start with the important thing that i think and this is this is what drove me to join that particular project is that um the conflation of you know, there are things that happen below war right i mean we have war and then we have peace and there are things that are happening in between that is that war is that peace uh, it can be it can be difficult to kind of splice those apart, but to be honest, I always ask people like you know, but we know we're either at peace with this particular country or we know we're at war, and there are there there's going to be some overlap there. Um, but China and China and India, right over their border dispute a couple months ago, like there's no confusion that they were at war with each other. They conducted warfare against each other. They killed each other with you know sticks with nails in them. You know, do you want to call that gray zone? Do we have to call it gray zone? Do we have to call it hybrid warfare? Um, it's none of those things, really. It's just two countries having a dispute over border, and they decided not to go to war over it. But they were not ever at war. And that's a critical distinction that I have people tell me all the time that I'm wrong on, right? That there is no longer this very distinct difference between war and peace, as if we live in completely unique times, right? That this is completely different never before right. were there skirmishes <laughs> right. that didn't result in total right. warfare right yeah. Okay. yeah yeah hitler invades poland based off of some you know totally fake polish invasion of of uh you know the german border uh everyone saw through that and it's not an example of gray zone right they didn't need to create the term then and we don't necessarily need it now i don't think Certainly, if you if you are, you know, please stick to a particular definition so that we can understand. Is it during war or, or is it? Do you, do you think in yet? these upcoming times that yeah. you know cyber activities or cyber attacks are acts of warfare, but not necessarily that are raising uh, yeah. aggression to the point where we declare war on one another? You know, that's the impetus for you know why do we need to have a gray zone? But no one says the gray zone is in cyberspace, right? No one, no one ever makes that leap. But they just say, well, there's all kinds of hostility. And what we kind of feel from a political psychology perspective, really see it as um, one, there's this kind of weird reverse mirror imaging, like the Chinese and the Russians do all of this stuff, but we don't like, oh, wait a minute. Like we are actually. I was actually going to ask a question if you think that's kind of politically expedient to say, well, this is gray zone below the level of warfare. They mess with us and now we get to mess with them. No, we've got to to, mess with them. But we don't have to declare war through Congress or have any other authorizations. Exactly. We're just boop, boop, boop. You know, we get to like poke bear over and the panda, I guess, both the bears. And who's who's to account for that? Do you think it's sort of a politically I'm just spitballing here, but. I think that, you know, I can't speak for people who are are kind of pushing these these terms in general as meaning something um, that that's helpful for us. And, and no, you know, they're they mean well, they really are trying to explain what you're trying to explain with. Like, it seems like conflict has 
kind of you know exacerbated or it's it's infiltrated in lots of new mediums and it makes it seem like we really are in a constant level of conflict and that's how they call it they kind of describe it you know gray zone as like we're just you know there's no such thing as peacetime anymore right we are at war someone will even come out and say we are at war we just can't call it that kind of like you're saying like no, that is, that is, you know, as Clausewitz would say, that is the fundamental error you can make is to mistake, you know, competition for conflict or war, right? Do you think the using, like, proxy, proxy organizations, where does that fit into, like, gray zone and, and hybrid conflicts? Yeah, I mean, you know, as Mike was kind of alluding to, these things have happened throughout millennia without necessarily calling them. They're proxy conflicts. They're, um, you know, we, the United States is at war right now, right? We're not saying that uh, we're not at war with everybody. We're at war with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. By legal definition from an authorization to use military force, uh, certainly by a funding, like budgeting, there's authorities that go towards fighting these two. And um, there's some other nebulous aspects, but largely those all center on them not being state actors. Uh, if they were state actors, we would have declared war on them probably and be, you know, in a state of war with them. But we are at war with them. But we are not at war with China and we're not at war with Russia and we might have hostile relations. I think, you know, one of the things we speculated is that the rise of these terms, we saw this, we saw a rise of very similar terms, gray zone and uh, not necessarily hybrid. It's a little bit more, uh, more of a modern uh, term. We saw the same thing at the beginning of the Cold War when we finished this huge, you know, cataclysmic world, world war, and all of a sudden we're, we're faced with now the Russians, and we thought we were friends and allies, and now we're, oh wait, you guys are doing things we don't really like, and so then there's, on the periphery, proxy wars right. are happening, and so we start to develop these kind of same terms, and then eventually we just kind of figure out the world's a messy place, People don't like each other. We kind of have to compete but not go to war because we have all these nuclear weapons. Yeah, do you feel like, I mean, I feel like the question begs itself an answer, but uh, do you feel like conflict is inevitable in competition, particularly in an era of great, grand competition? Yeah, no, not if we're seen. I mean, absolutely not, right? You know, you have Mearsheimer. I just read an uh, interview with him predicted for, you know, two decades that, you know, the U.S. is determined to go to war, those Thucydides trap, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, again, political psychology, we can will ourselves, you know, and we can see gray zone in everything that everybody does or that this is a gray zone, like, and that we could even match, like you were talking about, we can match their actions because uh, it's kind of unfair. We're democracies and we don't do those bad things, which of course As the Russians we're, and the, we're yeah, above that. Yeah, we're above that. And the Russians and the Chinese are like, oh, oh wait a minute. Uh, no. Yeah, that kind of brings this is a little bit more philosophical. But you know, there is if you look at like uh, media and, you know, the uh, art, music, film, you know, the 90s and post Soviet Union collapse is all like, you know, world peace is coming, it's on its way. And then now we're in the post 9-11 world, right? And do you think that maybe as a democracy, and as a world power, maybe the United States has matured a little bit into thinking and realizing, hey, you know what? The world is just messy and our hands are going to get dirty and we can't just hide behind this sheen of clean democracy. Everything's beautiful all the time. Yeah, I mean, well, one of the problems we have is that our democracy is not beautiful. It's not perfect and it's showing its imperfections right now. And then, uh, you know, you add on to this, this kind of post 9-11 
disillusionment with you know pretty heavy lifts that we tried that didn't you know we're still fighting isis we're still in afghanistan um did we do this to ourselves this kind of maybe it'd be better if we just took our toys and went home use the oceans to protect us the old american idea well obviously the world's way too way too interconnected uh, as we saw with covid really that there's just uh, it's it's too connected to kind of have those attitudes not that they don't exist and not that people can't make very good arguments for them uh, and those arguments will get tested you know here soon i think very soon and we'll see we'll see what uh what happens in november for the u.s and what direction we end up going but it'll be a pretty interesting very very you know every election is the most important election ever but the, you know this one is quite important and it's 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 quite important, in my opinion, because we have to make the decisions you're 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 talking about, Brian. I mean, Mike. Sorry. It's okay. I don't know which one of us I am either. It's <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. So, no, it's all good. I feel like that was a really excellent discussion yeah. on your book. That was our naval war college curriculum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. it's like, it's 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 kind of your wheelhouse and, and teaching at the war college, and you gave us some insight into your book, the ISIS Reader. Um, available for purchase on Amazon and or uh, also at at the Dudley Knox Library, which is where I picked up my copy. Uh, Oh, good. I'm glad they have one. And we do have a shortened article in the CTC Sentinel at West Point, which is free access and it's a it's a summary of the whole book so that's that's what i would recommend for, and a lot of well you know what a lot of your articles and readings are available online too yeah. whether through searching through the deadly knocks or through the various mm-hmm. other outlets we didn't even get to some of your participation in you know like a, a fellow podcast yes. war on the rocks yeah yeah, yeah. Like that. right um you have a lot of available writings and people can really dig into this research that you've done on a topic that still affects us today mm-hmm. whether we want to think about it or not because we have to try to prevent a third resurgence while also handling great power competition right. strategy. Yeah, that's a strategic challenge for the next decade. You could write the next national security strategy right there. All right, sweet. <laughs> well, I'll get right on that after my three late midterms. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, what do you think, you know, you're working in military education. Uh, what do you think are some of the toughest problems or the toughest problem facing our officers today? Yeah. Uh, this is... This is a topic near and dear to my heart as a PME, professor, uh, professional military education professor. Um, you know, I, in the in the national defense strategy, I think it was a national defense strategy, or maybe it was a national security strategy. I really should know this because I teach it, but now, now I'm confusing them, and I don't really remember which one it is. And one of them said, you know, PME is stagnant. And everybody just like latched on to that and like, because everybody hates PME. Like, you know, the people who do box of books or the people who don't have good PME instructors or it's the same old stuff that, um, you know, it's not my experience to be honest. I mean, I think we have a, the Naval War College, I think has a, a, a really good curriculum. It's, it's been lauded for its curriculum um, compared to, to others. Um, it's been an innovator. Of course, it's the same curriculum that, that has been probably since the 1970s. But post-Vietnam, it, it was the first to really, you know, teach Thucydides and all of these other type of historical case studies that are then integrated into other stuff like politics, political science. So all that's, all that's uh, so, you know, saying PME is stagnant, you know, it's kind of a, you know, as a writer myself, like that's a throwaway line that has no, it doesn't have any value, particularly when the real issues are, there are services in our DOD that really think that they're too busy for PME, right? That they just, they, that they got other things to do. The nation wants too much from them. And to be honest, you know, you, the best PME is driving a tank or a ship or a plane. 
And, you know, that's the kind of thinking that it's still there, you know, and that's what surprised me seven years into teaching here. It, it's, it's not, it's not changed at all. And that's, it's got to change, right? I was just listening to a great war on the rocks podcast with uh, general Mullen, who's a Marine Corps officer. That's what he says. Like, look, we're not going to, we're not going to have more technology than our foes at great power competition. And we're not going to have more people, obviously. Uh, particularly if you end up ha facing Russia and China together as, you know, fellow travelers. He said, but we can try to outthink them, and that's going to take education. He's a proponent of education. He calls out the a lot of the services for just, you know, really paying lip service to who they're sending to PME, when they're sending them to PME, how they get outside education, like here at NPS, or even in civilian uh, graduate schools. And, and the understanding that the, the only way we're going to be successful is really through education, period. But I've seen that reflected in our SECNAV guest lecture series guests since the time that I've been here as well. I mean, uh, Admiral Mullen comes to mind. Yep. You know, he, he talked about the warrior thinker, and that's yep. one of the things uh, that MPS pushes as well. And I'm sure, yeah, obviously, the Naval War College is that you know the, the more successful, what we're going to be most successful at is this warrior thinker attitude, and where we dedicate the time and space outside of our regular service to study and learn all of and to think about it and learn to think. And that's an investment in, you know, as General Mullen said, General Mullen, not Admiral Mullen, but right, they both right. say the same things. They could be, you know, maybe they are related. Uh, yeah, I mean, it takes an investment. You have to invest time and money into that. The, the, the military invests the money. Sadly, it's not a money issue. Like, you know, MPS exists. A Naval War College exists. Army War College exists. The Air War College exists. It's like, well, do we, do we want to waste you know, this officer's time to go there when they could do a box of books or hybrid learning or all these other stuff. I mean, they love this COVID experience because they're like, oh, we don't have to send people to PME. We can just make them do it at night on their own yeah, time when they I'm got families. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you right now, no, no nuts. It's Nutsville. No, I hear it from the top levels. I've, I'm, so I have to take remotely, you know, the air command. I know you do. That's right. Because you, yeah. Because I don't get, you know, like, I'll physically be here long enough to have taken You could it, take our naval work the college, yes. The Air Force doesn't believe But they're it. not going to pay for it. I'm going to take the remote. It doesn't, you could do it, take it for free. It's not even because a money thing. Yeah, because I could just take it online and it's totally cool. They're happy with you taking it online yeah, and in I've, person which like is it's, not, it's, it's on a new again, system nuts. now i've signed on to it like six times keep yeah. pretending like i'm going to do something yeah. but i was like uh no i'm gonna go to bed now, now <laughs> yeah so that's you know think about that and think about that the next time someone talks about it i mean i think hybrid is fine i'm teaching you know i've taught online here at nps since COVID, and it's gone it's gone well you know the military is really i think trying to pull almost some out people in the military are trying to pull kind of a, you know what, we can offload education onto the officer. Now, I, from a professional perspective, that is correct. Your, your education, both of your educations are your responsibilities. They're the services responsibilities, but they're first and foremost, your responsibility to educate yourself. And that's a, that's an attitude I had as a military officer for sure. And it's why I, I think so highly of PME and wanted to, to be participate in that post post-military. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you're, you know, how good is it going to be if you also have a family and you're also working, come on, in the military sometimes, you know, 16-hour days, 18-hour days, some days, and then you're going to do your PME right. while you're juggling your, your kid? No, that is just, <laughs> it's fantasy, but that's, 
that's the idea. And you can just see the almost the personnel officer saying like, ooh, we could get these people back for more tours and get them back out on more deployments if we can somehow get PME back into officers do it on your own. If Fox we don't have to send you somewhere. If you don't have to send you to NPS for two years, right? Like you right. are, Brian. And I mean, the, you know, there are parts of the Navy that just cringe at that idea that you'd be here for two years when you're right. probably getting a quality education and are going to bring back to the Navy way more than they put in. So what do you think are some of those gaps that we, that we as the mid-grade officers, like the, whether it's uh, the formal education or personal education, yeah. like what are some of the gaps that you see you know, not, not many. I mean, I'm, again, this might come across as parochial, if you will, but, you know, I love, I love our students here. They're, I learn as much from them as they learn from me probably. And, you know, their, their wealth of experience, whether it's on the joint staff or in a combatant command or in the South China Sea telling me, well, this is what a fun op actually looks like, you know, up close. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing experience to be a professor at a at a war college in that respect, and and to kind of learn from your students and not not be afraid to learn from your students. That's obviously, um, and so and and I'd say the other thing is, again, one thing that the services might miss if they really fall in love with kind of online learning as a really a solution to their other problems, but is that um, you know they the, the students are so hungry to get to learn after they've been experiencing stuff and the civilian models are actually backwards a lot of a lot of students you find in grad school they're actually just finished undergraduate school they have no real world experience or life science it's not everybody and it's not like I'm miss. one of them <laughs> what's that I'm one of them <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean to be honest that's that's pretty typical and so you don't get that value from and I don't think they get the value from their education but whereas military officers they've been out they've done stuff they've run across problems that they have not been able to solve in their own head and they come here with that baggage and it's amazing baggage because you can help them open up and uh, okay well this is what this is what was happening on your deployment that you didn't understand behind the scenes politically Pro process all of their career experiences they're desperate to yeah. they really are and so like you know you're here just trying to facilitate that and that's that's pretty amazing you know the one the one thing I, you know, military officers can also, you know, hey, I've been there, done that. So I know I know what the answer is already. And so as long as you can catch them and say, like, are you sure you know the answer? Like, is that really what happened in, you know, in my own experience? And I and I'm able to reflect that from my own experience because you know, I was part of like the, the Sunni awakening. I helped lead, you know, anti Al Qaeda in Iraq, Islamic State groups and stuff like that. Well, you know, in my research afterwards, I'm like, well, what was really going on there? Because I didn't really understand what was going on. I just went with it. We all went with it. And it's a totally different story, right? And so now I understand more of the political things that were going on behind the scenes that we didn't really ask about, nor did we really want to know about. As a professor or as a teacher, I absolutely love when people reach out and are like, hey, I'm working on a thesis or I'm working on uh, a paper and do you have material? Have you run across this or just, you know, I mean, that's, that's what I think. I don't get paid for that, but I actually feel like that's part of my job. And I have never turned a single person down. I'm just surprised people don't do it 
more often, to be honest. We don't really know as students all the time that it's okay to just like literally just reach out to these people. I just go just try, find the contact information for the author of this article. Ask them a question. Yeah. That's okay in academia. We're always, yeah. we're, you know, I mean, yeah. you've lived this Literally life like growing up. I'm outside like, the chain of command. It's like, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, do I Durloth? You know, like, Am I hell? allowed to do this? Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. What, are, what would you say is one of the dumbest things that you've, you've gone through throughout your career and what you've learned from that? You know, I'm lucky that my current career as an academic, I, you know, I came to it somewhat mature and uh, a lot of experience in another life, which I think is good. And a lot of folks say that that's how, that's what life's going to be like in the future, like, you know, multiple careers. And so it's, I don't, I haven't done anything super dumb as an academic yet. I did, I did lots of dumb stuff as a military officer and I won't get into. Tell us about one of those. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I won't tell any one particular story, but I will say that, you know, I look back on, you know, as a young officer, how many times I got in trouble. And, you know, the military has a rap, uh, let's say the Navy, like zero defect or like, oh, we're not zero defect. We fire skippers for running in the ground all the time and stuff like that. Like the military has its, they've, they've got their red lines, and, you know, for the Navy it has this, but the Army has similar ones for certain things I have to say. Um, and, and there are just certain things you can't do. But otherwise, you know, I've always been grateful that the military kind of like, you know, I, I should have been fired like five or six times <laughs> when I look back on it now as a lieutenant. I mean, really like, yes, I'm a dumb lieutenant, but no, I was like an especially dumb lieutenant. And when I think back on all the COs, who, the company commanders and commanding officers who covered for me and just should, took, the, took the, the beating from their hire and then came to me and, you know, didn't tell me, like, you realize how close you came to getting fired as a lieutenant, which is hard to do. They said, good job. Keep up the good work. You're doing excellent. <laughs> yeah. You're doing excellent things. Yeah, they didn't the even really even yell at me. I would have yelled at me now that I, you know, now that I, you know, now that I've had to mentor lieutenants uh, in, in my previous life and other stuff. So anyways, I, you know, I look back and then I think, you know, everyone has these stories. Like, so, you, you know, I'm sure we all have these stories. And then you realize, like, the military is actually a pretty forgiving place barring certain things, you know, like in right. the army, if you put a mortar around outside of the impact area, you're probably going to get fired. Like that's it's like running a ground for a skipper. And so as long as you don't do those things or have some bad luck happen to you, the military has been, a, it has a pretty forgiving environment. And I hope that, I hope that doesn't change, you know, that it could be dated experience for mine. I don't know what your experience is with it is, but uh, I was exceptionally dumb and unsafe, like even worse. Like, so I think the words was unsafe. I, I did an NTC rotation where I somehow managed my crew in my Bradley fighting vehicle somehow managed to make the, you know, the safety blotter three different times, like got underneath a 120 millimeter uh, tank round as it was going down range, which I was like, Ooh, I didn't even realize that happened. <laughs> like it shot over us, but it was because I was doing dumb stuff and, uh, another time we ran over like a chemical detection alert, which was an accident, but it made the safety blotter. And then there was another one I can't remember, but I think the third one really kind of sobered me up like, you know, oh yeah, it was a, it was a fratricide incident in the dark between us and another crew. And it was, uh, luckily it's not real, it wasn't real, it was simulated, but they treated it as real. So I got investigated for that and you know, like it was dark. You know, my gunner thought it was an enemy vehicle and it was a friendly vehicle. And, and so all the, I, I walked away from that and I was a first lieutenant at the time, almost going to be an 03. And I was like, 
I'm not going to make it very far if I don't <laughs> figure out a way to be safer as an officer. And that was a, a very valuable lesson, particularly going on into combat and other, other things. So if you could go back, change your profession, what would you do? And I wouldn't. <clears throat> yeah, I can't. I was an infantry officer, paratrooper, loved every single minute of it. Practically had to get told like, okay, you know, your time here is done. Time to go do something else. And so, uh, yeah, not to be in the, you know, kind of, that could be my personality or whatever, but to be honest, I, I would do the same thing over again. And I'm really happy where I'm at now, you know, being an academic, re using a lot of hard work, you know, hard won experience, and then hoping to help translate that to students, military students is, is, is also very fulfilling, you know? And uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that either. You know, I could probably go somewhere and make more money or do something else, but I don't think I'd be happy. <laughs> I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing. So, so that's usually a sign, like, you know, you probably, probably wouldn't do it. Do it. So if you can go back to that 23-year-old uh, that first lieutenant yeah. version of yourself, well, yeah. what did you tell him? Um, to trust your gut. Because, like, I, when, I left the, when I left the Army, I didn't really have a plan. I had a plan. I was going to become an academic. But, like, when I look back on it, that was a dumb plan. Like being an academic is actually, it's pretty hard to do. It's, I, and so and I was pretty lucky to get a position that I did. And you know, getting, a, getting a job like here at MPS is like kind of a moonshot when you look back on it. And so in a lot of ways, like statistically, mathematically, logically, doing what I did was about as foolish as you, as you possibly could do. Uh, but I'd tell myself as a 23 year old, like, trust your gut. Like, that's what my gut told me to do. It worked out. Um, the career path through the, through the Army that I chose, you know, I could have done a lot of different things. I could have gone to different units or whatever. And um, I'm pretty happy with the way that turned out. And a lot of time, those are all these gut decisions you make throughout that are either influenced by mentors or good advice that you get. But sometimes you're avoiding bad advice. Like, people told me to do stuff that I was like, eh. My gut tells me that that might have worked for you, but that's not going to work for me. And and I was right, you know. So trust not your own gut. Not naming names, but I did have this one commander that, that you know, you get that advice to like, oh, fill up a little notebook of all those great things that you. My notebook was of things not to do right. from that one particular individual. Uh, from from the same person. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like yeah, my notebook for you is all the things not to do as right. an officer or lieutenant Sorry. or anything in life yeah. as a human being moving forward. <laughs> so, oh yeah, all right. It wasn't that bad, but it's like it's just like oh, observe that. Don't don't do that. Note. Right. Don't do those. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's why people say like, does the does the military teach leadership or do they? How, 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 do, how does the military get a reputation for producing leaders that are looked upon highly in the civilian sector or in politics or whatever? And the answer is like, well, they, they learn from good leaders and they learn from bad leaders. So then, they, you know, people who are paying attention actually learn a lot. And um, there's a lot of leadership intensive uh, environments in the military. So, so, yeah, that's why. But it's not, you know, no one's teaching anybody anything. Like we don't give you like the leadership manual and that's like, that's it. All right, Dr. Craig Whiteside, co-author, ISIS reader. Go out and give it a, a look, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us in the Trident Room. Uh, cheers to you. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. For, for that. But, uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I, I appreciated it. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded the 19th of August, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. 
The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.